Hi, welcome everybody to Charles Listens. This is my very first podcast and hopefully over the next while we're going to have some brilliant interviews you will find interesting. Uh, today we have Gareth Daly. Uh, I just list off a few things. He's a film producer, director, lecturer and uh, I'm sure we'll find out a million of one things about Garrett over the next few minutes and I hope you like it. Well Garrett, what can you tell me about your childhood? How would you get interested in film industry in the first place? Well, I think I was just always interested in movies as a kid. Um, I was never a great reader and movies were the thing. I mean, small TV in the house. You know, there was a lot of movies on TV back in the day. And that was your your first gateway to watching movies. And I loved it. I had three other brothers. We would spend a huge amount of time watching films. And then obviously when it became possible to to go to the cinema regularly it became my thing and I would go as often as I could and I loved it I would save my pocket money to go and see the latest film that would come out and I would at weekends like come home with piles of VHSs to just digest movies so I always loved it never thought that I could end up working in it whatsoever I see where you're coming from like when I was growing up I was never into music. If somebody had asked me what was the number one of the week, I wouldn't have a clue. But if they asked me what film was out that weekend, I'd know. And they'd ask me who's starring it, and I could tell them who's starring the film. But if they asked me who sang such a song, I wouldn't have a bull's notion. <laughs> I know. Yeah, movies are great because they could take you to so many different places. And, you know, in a sense, you got to experience different cultures. Uh, you got to, I suppose, engage with these great stories. And, and in the 80s, which is, you know, when I grew up, there was, you know, the emergence of the blockbuster. And that would have just drawn a youngster in no problem because you know you had these fantastical stories on the big screen and you know amazing memories of going and just been blown away and I've talked to some friends of mine you know who kind of you know who may have grown up in the 60s and they had similar experience when they're seeing 2001 for the first time you know Stanley Kubrick's film and just been blown away by the special effects we had something similar in the 80s where you know the likes of these filmmakers like Steven Spielberg and the likes just took us to other dimensions and that was just mind-blowing for a 10 year old yeah, I see what you mean. Like I remember when I seen Planet of the Apes for the very first time, and uh, you know how it ended up. They, they, they yeah. found the Statue of Liberty. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, sorry. Uh, but like, it gave me the creeps. Yeah. And I, I can only imagine what it was like in the sixties, as at the height of the Cold War. Yeah. What it was like, and yeah. they, uh, but like, if you even go back further, back to um, the gangster films of, um, back in the thirties. And even go back further, just say people like Charlie Chaplin. We just listened to Radio One today, and he was a huge mega star, uh, like millions. Of, like they, they said that uh, because it was they weren't talking that that it was looked at. Everybody could look at it in the world. Like it doesn't matter if you're in China. It didn't matter if you could speak English or not. That um. Yeah, it would just translate everywhere. Yeah, I mean, amazing that you know, sub, the, the silver screen, I suppose, could do that. That You see, it, it, it makes somebody so big in front of us and it makes those stories bigger. And it's that collective experience. I mean, I, okay, I saw a lot of the movies 
first time out on TV, like you probably did as well yeah. growing up. But isn't there something amazing about going to the cinema oh, yeah. and having that shared experience and just watching it with other people with this massive screen? It has, if the movie's right, it has this massive impact on you. And it certainly did on me. Yeah, there was two f- films I remember in particular. Uh, Schindler's List. Like, I remember when I was walking out of there, I would assume like, there wasn't a word. Um, another film, uh, and still haunts me to this very day, the, the boy with a striped pyjamas. Oh, yeah. A lot of people in the film that read the book and they knew what was going to happen to the young boy. Spoilers. Uh, but I didn't. And like it literally shook me to the, to the core. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, the the one good thing about it is, I suppose it's a it's a medium that can reach a lot of people, and that's why movies like that have a big impact on many many people because they're accessible, um, and you know they're they're told in such brilliant ways. I mean, th- those two movies that you reference, obviously, war movies have a big impact on you in terms of, you know, those, I mean, Schindler's List was just this, you know, magnificent film. I mean, and so tough to watch that y- these images remain, don't they? You yeah. you come out and you think about them and you'll always remember sequences from them or you'll be triggered by something when, when you know, you'll see something else yourself. And that's the really kind of brilliant part of them that you kind of, think that if someone has dreamed this up, they have created it, and they were able to stage it like it's real. Um, it's such a talent, actually. Yeah, like there's other films. There's some films, if you see them in cinema or you see in television, it doesn't really make that much difference. Yeah. But there's other films like Save a Private Ryan, like the first half an hour or seven, yeah. like, you have to see a film like that in the cinema. Like there's no... I mean, I was done after that first 30 minutes in Saving Private Ryan. I just thought, oh, my God, I can't take any more. That was just immense. And it was shocking. And it was it like was it was the closest that we could experience to have been put on Omaha Beach. And it was so, so brilliantly recreated. And I was shaking afterwards. And I thought, well, we're only 30 minutes into this three hour movie. What's what's going to come next? Well, I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard that veterans yeah, of, of Alma Beach had to leave because it was so realistic. So visceral and the sound and everything about it just brought them right back and yeah I'd well believe it because it's such a powerful scene. Like I remember years ago other films like uh, films called uh, Seven and it was, it was one of the first films I, I seen it was Surround Sound and it was one scene and he goes into a nightclub and literally the music was pumping, pumping, pumping and you swear you're in the nightclub. Yeah, yeah. No, brilliant. I mean, you asked about the sort of impact in terms of childhood. I was telling my kids the first time I saw Jaws, right? Now, Jaws is a movie you need to see on the big screen, but it was on television back in the day when I first saw it. And I remember watching it with the family and being terrified, like absolutely terrified. And then the movie finished and I was told, you know, get ready for bed. And I thought... I don't want to go down to the bathroom. And my mother was like, why won't you go to the bathroom? And I was like, there's water in the bathroom. There's water in the toilet. I don't want to go near water. It had such an impact on me. Um, Well, I had had the same experience. Uh, I was in about seven or eight when I seen Jaws. And uh, all all that night, uh, I was looking underneath the bed to see would a shark come up. I know, looking back, that was ridiculous. But when you were seven years of age, I know it could be eight or nine, I can't remember now. I was terrified. Yeah, and I, do, I wonder, do people still have the same 
responses to stuff now because i suppose we are uh we are surrounded by by content we're surrounded by visual mediums everyone has a phone you know tvs are are plenty computers there's screen screen screens everywhere and maybe we're not as impacted by imagery as much as maybe we were when we were growing up i don't know you'd have to ask a bunch of 10 year olds if if they are Uh, but i suppose if it's the right if it's the right story it probably does have an impact on them yeah like like there there are still good films coming out and they Every year, I can't think of any top of my head at the moment, but I'm sure there... Of good films? Yeah. I, I love The Power of the Dog uh, recently. I, I haven't Netflix. seen it yet, but I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, stunning film. And yeah, so they're out. They're making some great movies. So uh, how, how would you think the film industry has changed over the years? Like, say when you first start going to the cinema to now. Well, to now, I mean, you take, take, I suppose, how we're all consuming stuff. We, you know, it's, is it the golden age of television? Most definitely. What is television anymore? That has changed. I mean, you wouldn't have got an actor back in the 80s wanting to do television in the US because it was seen as like where, where actors go to die. You don't go and, and do a TV series until your film career had finished. That has like completely changed because obviously with the emergence of streamers uh, and so much stuff been made. I mean, I think I read a statistic that was over like 550 original drama TV shows made in 2021. So that's a hell of a lot of stuff. So I think that's the biggest change. And of course, the biggest threat as well to cinema going because, you know, we can all watch these things at home. We've got big TVs. And there's a temptation to not go to the cinema. And what's happened cinema is that the movies have to be really big to survive being on the big screen. And I don't like that because I love the power of even a simple story on the big screen. But they might not make it anymore because I suppose you need to release a movie. You need to have it massive so that it will open up everywhere. People will go to see it and it will make money. And those things are ending up now on streamers. And maybe we're just missing a certain type of movie that I think was brilliant in the 80s and the 90s and go further back into the great movies of the the 70s. They just wouldn't make it to the big screen now. It's Avengers. It's Marvel. It's, you know, dinosaurs. That's all we get on the big screen that goes everywhere. So what do you think the standards in films that actually... Just go straight to Netflix or go to Prime or whatever that that are not are not films not great. They or? haven't been great, truthfully. I mean, and you use that phrase, just go to Netflix, because that used to be the thing. Oh, it just went straight to video, and that was a sort of byword for for sort of saying that it wasn't good enough. And I would have to say, yeah, I mean, up until now. I haven't been blown away by the straight-to-streaming films. They're getting better, and they're attracting filmmakers. And why are they attracting decent filmmakers? They're attracting them because these serious filmmakers who want to do serious stories are actually finding it hard to raise the finance to do their films, to release them the way that I was just describing. So the streamers are lining up and saying... If you've got an interesting story, we'll back you because they're so keen to get them on the service so that they have prestige. And we're starting to see a bit of fruition of that. You know, you had Martin Scorsese do The Irishman. People weren't too fond of that. Um, And this year in particular, I think there's three or four of the Best Picture nominees in the Oscars, if you want to sort of use that as a benchmark, uh, that are really good movies. And they went straight to streaming. 
um, and the others all went straight to the to the cinema. So it's pretty much split at the moment of they're getting better making this straight to streaming movies. So you know these days you've you've all the Marvel films, you've all the DC films. They they're all see either sequels. They have Scream Scream Five. You have. Is there a lack of imagination when it comes to Hollywood? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's the race for IP, intellectual property, and that's all the big studios are looking for. And they'll reboot Ghostbusters, and they'll reboot, and they're constantly looking for it. And actually, the thing that annoys me, even within those properties themselves, there is a, a there is a constant return to original characters. Or, you know, you can't do Ghostbusters without bringing back the original cast. Keeps going back on itself. And I don't like that because that's when you begin to to come full circle and these things lose their impact. Like, Stranger Things is a great series on Netflix, right? So that's an original series. Yes, it leans back into the 80s and those kind of great things in the 80s that people remember. Like the Goonies, yeah, and the uh, kids on this adventure, but it's a, is it an adult is it an adult situation that they find themselves in? Compelling, and adults and kids themselves end up watching it. Brilliant family viewing. It's original, you know, yeah. and so it didn't need that. And I'd say I think you're right. I don't think we need to constantly keep going back in mining these things that because they'll ultimately destroy them and you've seen how close that Star Wars has gotten to kind of ruining itself by trying this you know you've seen Star Trek try it as well uh, you know you'd be afraid for Bond in terms of where that might go you know all these things do come back around on themselves and you think maybe it's too much and sequels after sequels I do I do get tired of them after a while uh, but in the fans like the fans once uh, you you see Star Wars and Star Trek they want you things but they don't they want to keep the old stuff as well yeah so they I mean I can understand it and I can understand it if you're going to put 200 million dollars into a film you want to be able to guarantee that you'll get that back and there's only one way to guarantee it and that's by making something that you're sure people will show up to and how do you do that you do that by giving them you know something that they're familiar with it's such a risk starting afresh uh, and, and you know, going with something that nobody has a clue about. Um, so that's why it happens. And that's why it happens over and over again. Yeah. Like you say, Spider-Man, there's after breaking a whole lot of records. Mm-hmm. And we're saying the, the films like the Eternals, oh, that's all woke and all that stuff. But well, maybe you might disagree with this, but I personally think Spider-Man is, did so well and other films didn't do so well. It's because everybody knows Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, 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 Speaking of me personally, I never heard of Eternals. I didn't know who they were, what they were. So like, when I was, like when you went to Spider-Man, you, you know, you told me McGuire, you had Tom Holland, like, we were, who, who the character, all the characters were. But when you went to Eternals, didn't know. Didn't know. Yeah. Uh, and at one point, I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well, like, I mean, but this is, I suppose, what happens when you start looking for franchises and you try to start building stuff out. I mean, you know, you'd want to be a serious comic book fan to know all of these characters. They do exist. There's encyclopedias on Marvel. So they're 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 turning to these things and they will keep turning to them. But I can guarantee you there'll always be a Spider-Man movie because there is huge interest in that character. And why does it make huge amount of money? It has to be good. 
at a certain point because, you know, people will go and tell other people about it and then people will go and repeat, see it. So it doesn't just get to that number just because it's, you know, it is a strong IP. Um, You know, it needs the word of mouth. You go back to the last example of that happening and it wasn't a great film, but it was a moment in filmmaking which sort of changed things and that was Avatar where people then said you have to see it on the big screen. They use that phrase, you have to see it on the big screen. It's amazing 3D. The technology is fantastic. And it all was. It's just the film wasn't amazing, but people went to see it because they wanted the yeah, experience. Yeah, I remember that. It. Everybody yeah. had to get the 3D glasses. Yeah, yeah. And for a while, 3D films became the D thing. And I remember, uh, I think it was Pirates, one of the Pirates of the Caribbean films came out, and I think it had five minutes of 3D in it. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, just uh, to try uh, and. Which is a way of making money. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, is such a Hollywood yeah, way. But, but like we're on with Terminus there a few minutes ago. I remember when a Guardian, the first Guardians of the Galaxy came out, nobody knew what that was about. But as you said, it was a good film. It caught everybody's imagination and it made a huge amount of money. Yeah. There's a thing in Hollywood now called the blacklist, right? Now, the blacklist going back into the 60s and whatnot, you wouldn't want it to have been on. But the blacklist now is this series of original scripts imagine this thing original ideas original scripts and because it's such a unique thing to have something like this they have they, they've created a, a person set it up originally i think someone who couldn't get their 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 scripts made and as a way of making original ideas seem sexier than they are they created this blacklist so now hollywood executives go "Ooh, what's on the blacklist so they're looking at this list to see what original stories are out there Um, and it's a way of curating and gathering together these great original ideas and then like you know think about the matrix that was an original idea that came along and look how great that was so they really should be encouraging this it's you know it happens in the novel world all the time that you get this wonderful story coming along i would just like to see it happen more and more and return i think to wider scope films than the box office blockbuster fare that we're given is it getting overly pc now that you that uh like you're seeing with the Marvel in, in, in Netflix, all them series are all uh, rated and now they're being taken off Netflix uh, and they they might never be seen again. Yeah, we. I mean, there's certainly an age to that, but then you know, the, you know, things are removed. Obviously, if they're culturally inappropriate or they get a warning in front of them, I mean, there are you know uh, so many examples of different things in films that represent the time in which they were made. Uh, and it just opens up the whole question about, you know, art and how that should be perceived and should it be censored? Uh, and personally, I don't think it should be, um, you know, viewer discretion and, you know, make your own decision up uh, decision in terms of if you want to watch something. And look, you know, put the material there, let people decide themselves. But at the back of it, you have to remember these are corporations big corporations with stock prices and they don't want anything rattling their cages and that's why it happens and and suddenly something disappears because a boardroom gets nervous yeah you know here, here's a bit of controversy how about you know, actor a is accused of something mm-hmm. and uh, you know like kevin spacey like he was accused of something never tried or anything yeah. 
he was sacked off Game of Cards. He was uh, he was in another film and he was in and he was yeah and he got a replacement actor. Yeah, his in. career finished basically. Uh, and uh, like he still hasn't been charged with anything. What have you any opinion on that? Well, it's the court of public opinion which you can't dance with now because obviously uh, if it's anything that is um, you know. Uh, kind of anything sort of abuse related or sexual abuse related or you know um, there's accusations rightly so I suppose people have to put the brakes on in terms of uh, working with people like that um, figuring out if the truth is they have to let I suppose justice take uh, take its course so it's a really difficult one to navigate um, and I suppose, you know, the thing is that people, uh, the public will make their own mind up. And again, I think you come back to the to the people that are financing these things. There's no way they're going to risk it, particularly if there's some smoke around somebody. Um, and look, in fairness, in a lot of cases, it has proven to be true. You think of Bill Cosby and you think of, uh, you know, people like that, these, these uh, awful crimes that they committed. Uh, you then say Harvey Weinstein, another example as well. So I think they're right to react. You just don't want it getting too reactive to basically hurt people that, um, you know, maybe don't deserve it. But I think a lot have so far, and that's that's good. Um, and they should watch out for that because the industry's rife with it as well in terms of, you know, characters that use their power um, for different for different reasons. Sure. No one just talk a bit about yourself. No, sure. Yeah, they have <laughs> characters with no power. <laughs> oh, go that far now. Uh, uh, like you've, you've produced a few films. Uh, you're um, you've been nominated. Uh, you you won several awards. Matter of fact, you won a documentary award this year, this year in Galway. Yes, that's right. For a, a short documentary called Nothing to Declare, uh, we won the best documentary short award at the Galway Film Flower, which was really nice. Yeah, and it's a it's a film about two lads that went to America in 1985. It's them telling their true story. There were stowaways and they ended up in New York. So it's been a nice, nice film to produce. Uh, and did you direct the film a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah, directed. I've directed one feature film, uh, and it was all shot here in Offaly. Um, it was called A Nightingale Falling. Very low budget film. It was a period drama, so that's always a risk to do at a low budget. But it was something that we wanted to do. It was based on a book that a friend of mine wrote, uh, PJ Curtis. And uh, I was looking for something that could be a sort of first. I had made short films, short fiction films, and you always want to make the leap to a feature film at some stage. And it's a very difficult one to do with the costs involved in terms of making a feature film. But this felt like the right one to do at the time. And yeah, we shot kind of for a three to four week period, I think back in 2013. The film was released in 2014. We managed to get a cinema release with it. It went on to TV screenings and uh, it went on to play in different uh, different countries around the world. So for a very small film, it did quite well um, in terms of, you know, what it was. And it was a lovely experience just in terms of the people that we worked with and and also the people that we worked with locally because so many people, I mean, without their help, where we had a shortfall of, let's just say, a million quid, we had a community that basically came together. They searched their attics, they found loads of props, they came forward with old cars, old old uh, uh, threshing machines, uh, costumes, you name it. 
people came and delivered and helped and worked on this film as well for nothing, just to be involved and to help it out. And that's how the film got made. So it was a real community effort to get a movie like I, that. I remember out. seeing that in the cinema. And I, 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 fortunately, I was looking, oh, there's such a there's such a Oh, that was in Towers Pass. That was in Dying. Yeah. And like, it's great to see something local and like, uh, and, and see local people in films like that. And like, was it, it was something special. Well, I mean, I think, I suppose it was special for us anyway, the chance of getting to do it. And you're in a whirlwind when you make something like this because you're always against time. And, you know, uh, usually the more money you have, the more time you have. So when you haven't got a big budget, you're really, really pressed for time because you're trying to get as much done as possible in the shortest amount of time and, and still try and maintain some quality. And when you're in that kind of whirlwind you don't really get to experience what other people are experiencing when they're there and I think people did enjoy the experience of coming along because you don't usually get an opportunity to be in a film and you kind of think this is mad I'm an extra here or I'm I'm doing a scene or even I'm, I'm helping out and then people are like I can't believe how long it's taken to shoot that small little scene all these different things it's just I suppose giving people access and we did have a we did have a, a situation as well where we trained up some people to work in various different departments, whether it was sound or camera. So people who hadn't had an opportunity before to do technical roles got an opportunity to do this. And I like to think that that was, I suppose, a helpful thing for them or indeed at least an experience. And that's what I hope it was for people, a good experience. Yeah. Well, I remember there a couple of years ago, there was a film, a short film they made in, in a neighbour's house and it just went up, it was a friend's house and it went up just to see what was going on and I was I think it was there for two hours and they, they shot the, the different scene from different angles and it, it seemed to go on forever and ever and ever it does <laughs> and um, like I left them they, they were doing it when I went up there and I left them doing it and when I eventually seen the film I thought this was going to go on for at least two or three minutes the whole scene lasted to about ten seconds and I said, that's it. Yeah. And you know what? It's usually it's usually the really silly little things that take time. You don't think they're going to take time, but something doesn't quite work when you're doing it or someone might be putting a prop down and it doesn't land the way you expect it and you're having to take it again and again. I can tell you it's usually the silly things and not the big sequence that you might be thinking of doing. And you're thinking, why are they spending so much time on this? So you're saying to me that you do a bit work on lyric... Yeah, I've. I mean, is it is it is it is lyric, isn't it? It is lyric. So when I I did uh, I did a media degree when I left uh, school. That was, I suppose, my my way of getting into it. I had no idea and no family members or anything like that that worked in anything to do with the screen industry or the radio industry or anything like this. So when I was in school, I found a course in the UK. And that was a media course. And I thought, oh, you know what, I'll apply for that. That seems really interesting, not knowing if I get it or not. And I did get it. And so I found myself at 18 heading to the UK to study this media degree in the University of Sunderland. And that was amazing because there was like video production, there was radio production. And that sort of started an interest. It really, really developed an interest in, I suppose, media skills. And I started working in radio the very first year of my college um, uh, year because I got an internship in a local radio station back in Ireland. And the station was Radio Kerry. 
uh, down in Tralee. So every summer while I was in college, I went to work in Radio Kerry and I worked on current affairs shows. I worked in the news department. And then uh, over the course of the Rose of Tralee, I sort of said to the to the head of the, uh, the radio station, I'd love to do a show. I'd love to be a presenter on a show and just do a music show. So they gave me a slot a really high-profile slot at 2 a.m. in the morning <laughs> during, well, you the, have to start during the Rose of Chile, and I loved it. I was 18, 19. I was like, you know, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd take anything at that stage. And so I went and I did this show like for two hours between 2 and 4 a.m. in the morning because there was nothing else on the station at that time, so that's how they were able to give it to me. But I was able to cut my teeth and kind of figure out if I liked it. And I kept going back to the radio station every year. They kept asking me back. And when I finished in college, the first job that I got offered was to be a presenter of um, the nighttime show on Radio Kerry from 10 a.m. or from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. in the morning. And that was my first job. So radio's always been there in the background. I started producing radio. I worked for um, I worked for RTE for a bit of time. I was a trained producer for RTE, so I worked with uh, Ryan Tuberty. I worked with Jerry Ryan. I worked on their shows and produced their shows uh, for a period. I made radio documentaries as well. And then one of the things that I I, I did, I got a job uh, with Lyric FM when it first started, and that was my sort of first step into RTE. And I would stay there for a couple of years and then I headed off to Australia at one point to work in a television station out there. But I always kept doing the movie news for um, Aideen Gormley's show, Movies and Musicals. And I'm going on nearly 20-something years now of weekly doing this movie news slot on Lyric. And it's great. It's it's just one of those things that I suppose just stayed there. of great uh, friendship with Aideen. She has a brilliant show. And uh, yeah, they've 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 not asked me to stop doing it yet, and uh, I love doing it. It's just a simple thing where I bring movie news to the program weekly. Uh, so and you do lectures as well? Yeah, I lecture as well in the field of film and radio. Um, I lecture in TU Dublin in the Tala campus, and I have students in radio production. I have students on an advertising module, and I have students in I suppose what we'd call video film production. So I assist them in the making of their films, and then the other students I guide them in their various different disciplines as well. So I combine that with my work as a filmmaker and producer. So I, I tend to do that stuff. I, I I suppose I what I do, and the reason that that works for me is I like doing projects that interest me. Um, And so the fact that I combine it with doing the lecturing, I'm able to pick and choose the type of projects that I might do. I don't have to do stuff. Um, If it was my full-time job, I would. I'd have to be doing kind of more more of the daytime stuff or more of the programs. And the fact that I've sort of chosen the, the lecturing to coincide with it, I'm not under as much pressure to have to do it. And so that allows me a little bit of room to go, I really like that subject or I really like that story. I think I might make that film this summer or this Easter or whenever I get a chance to shoot the stuff. I was busy trying to combine them all and to do them. And the thing about the sort of film and TV production, it ebbs and flows. You know, you're in development for a very long time with no pay whatsoever coming in. And actually, even that, even the even the production stuff, you're lucky sometimes to even get paid with it. It's such a difficult industry to make a living in, you know, certainly at the level that I'm at in terms of, you know, not doing projects that are of a massive commercial level. 
But it's not that. It's just that I'm driven to kind of do these stories anyway and to, to get them out there. And that's kind of the that's kind of the goal, to put them in front of people and get people to see them or listen to them. Uh, just a few last questions. Sure. For, firstly, uh, if somebody's doing their leaving cert this year or maybe they're, they're starting off their fifth year or they're doing their transition year, what would you recommend they do if they want to get into the film industry? It's very simple. If you want to be a writer, you pick up a pen or a pencil, right? If you want to be a filmmaker, you want to work in that aspect of the industry, you pick up a camera. And back in the day, you couldn't do that because there was no access to anything. And so I look around me now and everybody has a camera in their pocket. I mean, a smartphone is a fantastic camera. Um, it is, you know, there's apps that you can put on it that makes it a really high end. We've had film directors like Steven Soderbergh, you know, the director of um, Ocean's Eleven and things like that. He has shot movies on an iPhone. They're on Netflix. You can go watch them. So there's kind of no excuse to not actually, you know, apply your skills in that art form. It doesn't cost much to get an editor or to even edit on your phone using a, a piece of, of software. So... What you need to do is exercise that muscle, that creative muscle, and do it with the technology you have. You don't have to spend any money. If someone has a smartphone in the house, get telling stories. They can be short. They can be tiny little things. You've got YouTube to publish them to the world if you want to, or you can put them into film festivals. But certainly, the minute you're showing interest to it, you know, you can get little apps to do animation, but you just showcase to somebody that you're interested in telling these stories. And the more you do, the better you will get. And I think that's the opportunity that is out there for everybody right now. Okay, two, two last questions. Sure. First question is, where do you see Garrett Daly in 10 years' time? <laughs> I've not a clue. I would reckon I'm going to be still doing uh, interesting stories, I hope. Uh, that's what motivates me. Um, I'm always fueled by ideas. I can't stop thinking about ideas and if one pops into my head I start developing it and I see if it takes me somewhere or I encounter somebody that I think wow they are just an amazing person we need to make a documentary and showcase an aspect of their lives and, and I suppose chasing that um, notion of putting stories like that on the screen I can't see me changing with that it doesn't matter what the medium is to me if it's radio if it's TV, if it's film, if it's streaming, doesn't matter if it's online, um, if it's a way of telling stories, I just that's what I see myself continuing to do and will be kind of delighted to do. And on top of that, more than likely still working with bright young minds and, you know, new talents that are coming through. That's really exciting as well to kind of be alongside youngsters as they're getting to take their first steps in the industry as well. And I suppose hoping that any experience that I have, I'm able to impart to them. So more of the same, I would say, Charles, and hopefully, you know, hopefully so. Okay. Uh, you know, everybody seems to be uh, doing a, a streaming service. So you have Netflix, you have Peacock, you've got Disney Plus, you've got Paramount. I, Paramount, you name it, they have it. And they call it the stream of Mars. So, Firstly, there's a two-part question. Are they all going to survive? Are they going to, uh, one or two are going to collapse? And how do you think the film industry is going to develop over the, the next, say, 10 to 20 years? So will they all survive? It's hard to know. We're all getting pressed financially now in terms of cost of living. 
And I think once that starts happening, you start looking at everything to go, do I need Apple? Do I need Netflix? Is it a bit too expensive? And once those conversations start happening in households, we'll begin to see a reality check as to whether, you know, these streaming services can survive. Will they be bundled together? Will one buy out the other? I don't think we can pay for them all. Uh, I really don't. Now, they're offering great quality at the moment. So I think, yeah, watch this space. I think, you know, something will happen there. We're talking about a very young industry with all of these things. You know, 10 years has done, you know, massive change. As for the film industry, well, technology is going to push that. I mean, we're going to see VR more and more probably coming into storytelling. Uh, it's not something that I've personally got interested in yet, but I think it will have an impact. Um, you know, we'll obviously see it in gaming, and I think that will translate across to 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 film going in some way, shape, or form as well. Ultimately, I still hope for those people that can sit down, come up with a great story, cast amazing actors that we all marvel at, find a way to make a beautiful image throw it on a big screen you get a group of people together to watch it and those people after being enthralled by two hours or two and a half hours of of entertainment drama comedy science fiction thriller whatever it is go into the foyer and start talking about it and i hope that remains and i think it will because i think post pandemic we realize that we like the experience of these things we like to go to places to be entertained and cinema is one of those things that can that can do that that streaming can't do and i hope that um we'll all kind of see the value in that that we continue to go and let's hope that the makers of the stuff and hopefully myself as well in terms of making material for that can give the audience something that will constantly surprise entertain and uh make them talk about it just one last question it just occurred to me. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, I, I can't even name the film. It was a Star Wars film and they got, uh, this actor was dead. And Yes, uh, uh, Rogue One, which uh, Peter Cushing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, have you any opinion that in the future they might use it more often? I think I'm fascinated by it. Because yes, I mean, I'm seeing it in, in the Book of Boba Fett um, and, and Mark Hamill is although he's on set but it's the younger version of mark hamill from return of the jedi that we're seeing on screen and this deep fake technology i suppose that has come about that can recreate somebody like that it's it's kind of utterly fascinating if used correctly it could be very interesting but i suppose it's going to change the nature of longevity in terms of performance it's going to be in the new indiana jones movie as well you know they're going to be doing sequences of when you know harrison ford is much younger and we'll see how that plays out so if used correctly in the right hands it will open up interesting avenues in storytelling if it's abused Oh, I think it could get very tiresome very quickly and and disrespectful maybe. Yeah, but in years to come, you could have a film yeah. with with John Wayne in it, uh, Clint Eastwood, and a, a few Ma- other actors. Marlon Brando. Yeah. Marlon Brando. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's uh, usually uh, possible. It's about the authenticity of that, though. That's the thing that's going to to work or not work. I can buy into the stuff in Star Wars to a degree, particularly the recent stuff because I know the actors involved. So there is still an element of performance. Now, when the actor is long gone and they're lifting images from, you know, previous films, 
and the performance is computer generated as opposed to actually actor generated, that's when we'll all be tested to sort of see, you know, uh, how we buy into it or not. But you know what? It's kind of fascinating. It's kind of it brings together an intersection of technology and culture. And probably that's the avenue that we all have to face going forward in terms of how it has an impact on things. And I think, you know, I for one will be signing up to sort of see where that goes because that's going to add an extra element of curiosity. But let's hope it's used well. Well, thanks, Gareth. I entirely enjoyed this talk. And uh, thanks for being my first guest in Charles Listens. Absolute privilege. Yeah. yeah. And maybe in 10 years, if we do it again, we could be sort of CGI'd and maybe look younger with that technology. <laughs> what about that? <laughs> I, I think it's possible. <laughs> maybe in 10 years' time, you could be uh, directing a, a Mega Buster Star and maybe interviewing you on. Uh, and on MP- MTV. How about that? Well, look, it's been a it's been a pleasure to to chat to you, and thank you very much. Yeah, well, thanks, Garrett. Mm-hmm.